Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. So that's the story of why I got a Picardy Spaniel, because it's a breed that comes from a region of the world that kind of looks like where I hunt. It's bred by hunters who hunt the way I hunt and want dogs to perform in the way that I want them to. So it was kind of a match made in heaven, really. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. You got Joe here and Mr. Nick Adair. What's going on, Nick? Oh, not much. You drug me on to do this intro real quick. <laughs> no, Nick, we are we are not the best podcast in the world. I don't even what? think we're the best dog training podcast in the world. Why do you say that? But we are consistent, <laughs> man. Yeah, you can't take that you, away you from can't, us. You, you, can, you, can, you can ding us for a couple of things, but, uh, you know... When we were just a bunch of, you know, married guys with nothing to do, you know, we could get the podcast out. <laughs> we didn't miss a podcast when I legitimately had a baby on a Monday night. Or yeah. I guess it was a sun it was technically a Monday morning. <laughs> and now you are close to a death and you're not missing this podcast either. So you can no. ding us for a lot of stuff, but you can't ding us for uh, not getting podcasts out. Well, around tuesday morning (laughs) fortunately this episode this week with craig i had recorded the night before i caught whatever the heck this is uh so the timing worked out on the actual episode but as far as the intro i've been on the couch really since like last wednesday evening uh and not moved (laughs) like it's just i don't know what it is uh i did go get tested it came back negative for the flu and covid but you know it They'd say, I don't know what it is, but you caught something. I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> you didn't catch it from my wife and I, even though we were there on Sunday. I, I guess. But yeah, dude, it, it was rough. And so when you you texted me, uh, Let, let's do the intro tonight. I'm like, oh, fine, let's make it quick. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a quick one. We, we had some stuff podcast related that we needed to get done this week. It didn't yeah. get done for, you know, a, for various reasons, but that's fine. <laughs> we'll roll with the we'll roll with the punches and right, um, right after you got done talking about how punctual we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, who do, we get, who do we got on the podcast this week? 
We have Craig Koshik. And so, you know, this is kind of the uh, kicking off point of what I've been telling telling you and a few other people. I, I kind of wanted to do a uh, puppy series and mm-hmm. uh, get back into it's springtime. A lot of people, we get a ton of questions on, you know, I'm interested. Where do I start? Where do I look? What dog do I get? Who do I get it from? And just all those type of questions. And so uh, we've touched on it. A while back so we've you know it's always a good topic so i circle back around and we're starting off with the obvious where you really need to start off and selecting the right breed for you and the right type of dog for you and anybody that's been in the dog world for longer than you know a couple months they know who craig koshik mm-hmm. is you know mm-hmm. he he, he kind of is the the renowned breed <laughs> historian kind of right, in the right. dog world and so i i reached out and and he was willing to come on and share his time and i enjoyed it i, I really look forward to it and uh, we didn't really get into any one specific breed and breaking down the history of that because you know there, there's really no competing with his podcast for that so check that out if you want to but at, at the end i couldn't get him on and not talk about one random dog breed that i've always had questions about and uh, he kind of helped me settle a a debate with a buddy of mine. So, well, and, and come, it was cool that you did it because you've never been just a one breed guy. You know, you've always said that you kind of want to test the waters with, with every type of dog breed and see how, you know, they train and work. So, and you got to yeah. love, and what, you know, whenever someone starts talking and you just know that they're from Canada, it's <laughs> always going to be a good episode. So. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. So, you know, world of information, he, he uh, there's just a lot of good stuff on here. So uh, if you're looking to get a dog or get your next one, you know, it's a good starting point. And then, uh, yeah, we have a couple good topics over the next few weeks lined up with people. And uh, hopefully I, I can kind of kick this, whatever it is that I have right now and get back on track and start putting out the, the quality of information and content that uh, <laughs> we expect to put out. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, I do have one uh, bit of news. We did hit over a hundred patrons. Yep. So if, if you guys are new to the podcast, you know that that means one of those 101 patrons as of right now uh, are going to get a kennel. Yep. And I have contacted awesome. one guy that drew it, but uh, waiting to hear back because if, you know, dude already has a kennel and one dog, then we're just going to go find somebody else that could actually use the kennel. There we go. Uh, well, uh, yeah, we're going to wait and see. So there might be one still up for uh, for grabs, but, you know, as of right now, you, you missed out on your chance for the uh, kennel giveaway, but still sign up, support us if you want to. If you don't, uh, if you don't have any money to throw our way through Patreon, then uh, be sure to hit that five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and that sure as heck uh, helps us out a lot, and it's free and quick. So that's something you can do right now. There we go. Well, Nick, I'll let you go to sleep, man. Yep, I'm headed that way. <laughs> All right. Have a good week, guys. All right. See you. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not, though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan-raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after-hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol-friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. 
Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, everybody. We are joined this week by Craig Koshik. Craig, how are you doing this evening? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on and and willing to share your vast knowledge and experience uh, as it comes to breaking down the dog breeds and pretty much the endless selection that it is nowadays with all these hunting dogs and and every breed has something different to offer everybody yeah there's certainly a lot to choose from that's for sure yeah so you know as we discuss i was really wanting you to come on uh again with with you being so knowledgeable on all the breeds to really speak to the importance of when somebody is starting the process uh of picking their next dog it doesn't have to be their first one just any dog uh the imp- the importance that it really is selecting the right breed for them and, and why it's so important so you know that's that's really the the biggest question in my opinion on everything is why. So uh, let's go ahead and start as to why it's so important for somebody to really take their time and select the right breed for themselves. Yeah, you know, and first of all, I'd just like to sort of, you know, uh, give you props for actually bringing this up because it is something that um, a lot of people don't think about until afterwards. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's been some research done and I've read some surveys um, that indicated that people spend more time uh, choosing the brand and model of dishwasher that they're going <laughs> to put in their house than they do when it comes to choosing a dog. And right. throughout, you know, my time working with and, and, and writing about and publishing about dogs, um, one of the most common questions that I receive is, hey, I, I want this breed, where can I get one? Um, and I'm always sort of, you know, I'll give anybody the advice that the best advice that I possibly can. Cause I, I do have, you know, some knowledge of all of the different pointing breeds and a lot of the other, you know, retrieving and working breeds of gun dogs. Um, but before I do that, what I try and do is sort of suss out of them exactly why they want that particular breed. Um, right. you know, just to make sure that they don't fall into the trap and, and to answer your question, it's because. If you don't get the, the right dog for you, that dog is not going to do what it was put on this planet to do. And the only job of a dog, I don't care what breed it is, working, non-working, hunting, non-hunting, the job of a dog is to put a smile on your face. Dogs are here to enrich our lives. Um, one of the one of the sort of things that really I think about quite often, it's an old story I heard a long time ago, and I have no idea where it comes from or what sort of myth it is, but they say that when the when the uh, the Grand Puba when the here up in Manitoba we have a lot of uh, Aboriginal Aboriginal Indigenous people and they call him the the great uh, maker the great spirit when he when he created the earth he he put all the animals on one side and man on another and he said okay I'm going to bring my hand down and I'm going to cause a massive canyon to form between the two of you so that you're always separate between man there's always this big chasm between man and animals and just as he was about to strike the earth dog jumped over uh, (laughs) to be with man and and to me that's always sort of been my guiding philosophy and idea in terms of why dogs are here dogs are here to enrich our lives dogs are here to 
you know, help us connect with the natural world. They're here to help us connect to ourselves, to our fellow hunters, to, to just to go to places and do things that we can't do on our own. Dogs are there for that. So getting the wrong dog kind of short circuits that, or you don't get the full sort of benefit of the reason that dogs exist. Um, let's face it, you know, I mean, you, you get a dog, it doesn't matter how bad it is, you're going to love it. <laughs> you, you will yeah, love it, yeah. but you, you might regret it. And I know from, I've just seen too many situations where the person owning the dog and the dog itself were not living the best life they could live simply because, not because one or the other were, were bad, but it was just a bad match. And right. so by doing the proper research and the proper homework and, and, and understanding sort of the steps that we'll discuss now in terms of getting the dog that's ideal for you, you just set yourself up for a happier life for both you and the dog. Absolutely. And, and that's very important to touch on is, you know, you getting the wrong breed for you not only makes your life and experience difficult, but it's also a disservice to the dog. And, and what you're just talking about, I really appreciate that is it, it no matter what the reason of you getting the dog it, like you said, it's really there to bring joy and pleasure into your life and put a smile on your face. And that's whether whether or not you're a hunter or non-hunter and you're looking for a companion. That really is the ultimate goal and why we we get these dogs and these dogs do great things such as hunt for us because that's what we enjoy to do. And, and that's our goal to do with the dogs. And so that's that is very important to uh, distinguish, in my opinion. It is. And what it does, and again, I go back to these inquiries that I get from people all the time. I probably get two or three emails a day, um, you know, inquiring about this breed or that breed or my advice on this or that or the other thing. And I try and respond to them as quickly and, and, and uh, you know, uh, honestly as I possibly can. But um, it, it, it really, again, as I said, dogs are there to guide us to certain places where we can't go on our own or certain places that we sometimes forget to go. And and the one thing, the piece of advice that I give to everybody when they're thinking about a dog is to stop thinking about the dog right away and just pause for a minute and think about yourself. You know, the old saying, know thyself. Dogs should force you and they do. If you, It doesn't matter the right or the wrong dog. Dogs will teach you a whole boatload about yourself <laughs> that you probably didn't know beforehand. Yeah. Um, but, when you're in search of a dog, uh, again, whether it's your hundredth or it's your first, you got to do a little bit of soul searching. So, you know, we just mentioned that a dog's mission on this earth is to put a smile on your face. Well, that begs the question, what puts a smile on your face? Mm -hmm. You could look at all of the ads you want for, you know, top-notch gun dog in the back of some magazine and there's a smiling owner because he just won a championship. And to that dude, winning a championship has him smiling. You could see that smile across the field. He's smiling from ear to ear. For other people, me, <laughs> for instance, I'm about as competitive as an Anglican minister. I, I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a competitive bone in my body. Um, if you know, I was a photographer for many years, and one of the reasons I didn't get into photojournalism was because I, I was just too eager to help somebody else get the shot before me instead of elbowing <laughs> my way in front of them. So for me, these competitive venues, which, hey, I admire them. Listen, I go to field trials. I watch them. I see jaw-dropping you know, performances by unbelievably good dogs. And I look at them and I admire them and go, holy smokes. But I look at them the same way I look at competitive snowboarding or Formula One racers. 
is like, yeah, that's cool, but that ain't me. So one of the things, again, I encourage everybody to, to sort of do first is what floats your boat? Why do you want the dog? What, what makes you happy? If it's a hunting mm-hmm. dog, ask yourself the question, why do you hunt? Well, let me ask you that question, Nick. Why, why do you hunt? What is the, the goal of your hunting day? When you head out, you got your dog or dogs with you, you head out for hunt. What's your main goal? I honestly, when I go hunt, it, it's ultimately as corny as it sounds to some, I want to disconnect. I want a nice, enjoyable, relaxing time out in the field or the grouse woods, whatever, with my dogs and my and my best friends and just disconnect from life, turn off the phone and just get lost out there with the birds and dogs. That's what I want. I don't, you know, just the easy hunting. Then right there, you and I, we could be in the same sort of category and, and, and sort of narrow down our choices right there. That's the first step because I have friends for whom the main goal of hunting is the adrenaline rush. And you know what? Hey, yes. good on them. Hey, mm-hmm. there happen to be sometimes the same guys that love, you know, field trials or, or high level, you know, hunt tests and things like that. Hey, good on them, man. I know right. guys that are out there because they just love the rush of it. And I actually had a dog like that. I, I, I could talk from personal experience. I love that dog to that. He was just, he was by far the most athletic, most high performance dog I ever owned in my life. And I, I will admit to anybody who asks, he was way too much dog for me. Because I'm like you, I go out to the field. I want to relax. I want to disconnect. Yep. I want to. Henri was his name, Henry in English, and he was an unbelievable dog, a Weimaraner. And you didn't hunt with that dog. You you basically put on a helmet, seatbelt, <laughs> and held on for dear life when that dog just flew. And it was yep. the, mag- the most magnificent spectacle you could ever watch. It was like riding a roller coaster. It was just unbelievable. And right. I did it. I, I must say, I did enjoy it, but. That is not the reason I, I hunt most of the time. I would take him out and go, okay, people, watch this. And you just see smoke <laughs> coming out of his ass, you know? And it was, it was unbelievable. And, and I, I appreciate it, and I understand it. But yep. to be perfectly honest, that dog should have been in the hands of someone who was really deep into field trials because he would have been a world beater. With me, yeah. he just hunted a lot, and we, had, we got a lot of game and, 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 and you know, had incredible memories of that dog. But, you know, to be honest, it, it, it wasn't the perfect match for me because I'm like you. I want to go out. I want to relax. I want to disconnect. Yes. I don't want to get on, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get on the roller coaster, as it were. Yep. But yep. other people do. And, and, and so that's what they need to understand. Yeah. I mean, to your point, we've all been in the field with other people who have that personality to where they just love the dogs that burn jet fuel and that just, I mean, they're ranging, they're out there and they're, I mean, it's just go, 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 go. And to your point, I can appreciate that. It's just not my style of hunting and why I train the dogs throughout the whole year and look forward to, to the fall it's it's each their own right and so that's why it's very important to match the dog up with the type of hunting that you want to do yeah that's exactly right and it also sort of illustrates one of the challenges to anybody looking for resources okay look i want a new dog i want a different dog so i'm going to start looking online i'm going to look in magazines i'm going to you know come across a couple of ads or some really popular videos out there well it just so happens that some of the most 
you know, well-funded, for instance, ads or, or YouTube videos or, or, or sort of the most, you know, well-done things are, are produced by people who, for instance, run a lot of field trials or like the high-octane jet fuel dogs. Because yes. in order to get those dogs, they have to breed a lot of dogs and they have to sell a lot of dogs. So it's in their interest to make sure that they're in the ad for Purina. And Purina's interest is to say, okay, or whatever dog food you're feeding, uh, is to say, here's champion so-and-so next to a bag of our food. If you feed him this food, you'll have a champion. Now, for people who want champions, oh my God, like that's fantastic. They know exactly where to go. But for those people who, who may not want to go that way, who might want, for instance, a more a dog that's a little bit more relaxing to hunt with or more cooperative or more versatile or whatever it is, they kind of get drowned out. It's almost as if every billboard on your way to work had a Ferrari on it. Yes. When the best you know, vehicle for you would be a, a Jeep. Uh, you, you know, or a Hummer or something like that. So mm -hmm. that's one of the challenges is that you have to not only reflect in terms of what floats your boat and what you really want, but also what does your news feed show you? What, what are you being exposed to? What are the dogs? What are, who is trying to influence that decision? And do they have your best interest in mind? Do, do, do those people just want to sell a dog or do they want to perhaps try and convert you to the way that they like it? And hey, good on them. If they do, fine. A lot of field trial people and a lot of high octane dog owners were converted. They, 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 oh my God, they got one and that's how they got into it and good on them. But right. again, it really comes down to sort of evaluating yourself and your sources of information and your sort of exposure. Where are these messages coming from and how do you sort them out so that they end up being really good information that will help you ultimately decide on getting a dog. Right. Yeah. It, it's all about kind of getting out of the echo chamber. You know, it's so many people want to get into to the dog world because their friends have this type of dog. That's the type of dog that they saw at a preserve, or this is a type of dog that's always showing up on their social media feed or something like that. But there's to your point as to why we want the dog and what type of hunting and why we hunt there, there's a lot of questions that go into this to make sure that it's a good fit other than, you know, just your buddies have this type of dog and, and they swear that that's the best hunting dog out there. Well, it may be for them, but maybe not for you. And while you're, while you're trying to figure this out, you know, like you said, why you hunt is a big piece of the puzzle. But once you kind of figure out why you want to hunt and why you want a dog, you know, you have to consider what type of hunting you want to do, right? And so these dogs over generations, they've kind of broken out into different specialties naturally. You you know, you have your pointers and flushers and your scent hounds and your track hounds and stuff like that. So it really, you kind of have to ask yourself why, but you also have to ask yourself what you want to hunt, right? Yeah. And it goes, yeah, that's super important. It's I, I would put it, you know, sort of the number one and two questions, why do you want one? And number two, not only what do you want to hunt, but what do you actually hunt? What do you do? You have to be brutally honest with yourself. Um, you know, a friend of mine, he's a mechanic, and he oftentimes gets trucks in there. And these are four-by-four four vehicles. And he gets them in there for service, and he realizes it's a four- or five- or six-year-old vehicle that never once has ever been put into four-wheel drive mode, ever. Mm. Yet the person who bought that vehicle was sold the idea that, hey, you could put it into four by four. And in their mind, they were in the Mojave Desert. In their mind, they were climbing this thing and that thing. And they were out. But 
In reality, they had never done that before in their lives and they never will. You know, so it's the same thing as a photographer. We see that with cameras. Camera salesmen are really good at at telling you all of the different things your camera can do. And the fact (laughs) is that 99% of people don't do 99% of the things that their cameras can do. They're just selling you on some of the sizzle and not on the steak. So again, you're looking at a dog and this breed is renowned for, oh my God, it's the world's, you know, look at it chases boar and it brings down deer. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'll do that. No, no, I'm sorry. You won't. Do, I'm, you just, you will not. Or if you haven't done it already, or if you're not sort of deeply into it or connected with people who are doing X, Y, or Z activities, you know, sea ducks off the East coast, I'm going to, well, no, you're, you live in, you're, you're in Oregon. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, you're not going to, you know, be, shooting eider ducks in Alaska. But that's part of the sales pitch. And that's part of the romance that we have with dogs. We love their history. We love what they can do. But if you're really honest with yourself, you know, you'll end up getting a dog that's probably better suited for what you do instead of trying to adjust and trying to justify having this dog and and, and trying to take on certain tasks and training things and, and activities that aren't really you and aren't really what you're doing, but that's what the dog's for, so I better do it. And again, all of that detracts from that smile on your face. Now, please don't get me wrong, listeners. If you want to do these things, there are some dogs out there that do unbelievable things. If you want to bore hunt with dogs, there are some unbelievable dogs out there. There are dogs that are fantastic for falconry. There are dogs that are fantastic for hunting, you know, for for running down coyotes in the desert. If if that's your if that's your thing, man, good on you. Go for it. Um but if that's not your thing, don't delude yourself into thinking that overnight that's what you're going to do. Um, yeah. first of all, go see it a few dozen times and see if it really floats your boat, go and hang out with those people and see if that's your crowd. You've got to try it first before you commit to a 10, 15, or even more years of a dog's life with you. Absolutely. No, I, that, that's some great points. And, and to kind of caveat off that, I, I'm always reminded of, so you you host the hunting dog confidential podcast and, and i told you before we got on here that it's it's one of my favorite podcasts especially if you want to dive deep in some of these breeds and their history and and you mentioned on one of the episodes why you ended up with the dog breeds that you have and and it really boiled boiled down to you were looking at the type of hunting and what you were hunting locally and you matched that up with a dog who originated overseas with very similar habitat and the same style of hunting. And so touch on that a little bit, you know, to give us that example of what brought you to the Picardy Spaniel. Okay. Well, let me start before then. I'm going to go way back. Um, So, so I come from a family of hunters. Basically my grandparents were settlers or pioneers here. I live in Manitoba and they came over my father's family from Ukraine, my mother's family from Iceland. And they basically settled in um, the the, the South end of Lake Winnipeg, which is, and the Delta Marsh, which is, was famous, world famous for, for waterfowling. And so they fished and they survived and they fed their kids by fishing and hunting and guiding hunters. So I come from a long line of hunters, but they didn't have dogs. Yeah. They had farm dogs. They had a yard dog and his main job was to once in a while help, you know, herd a a reluctant cow into the barn, but mainly to bark if somebody came, you know, up the driveway, that was their main job. So they didn't have hunting dogs. So I'd been around dogs. I love dogs. I always wanted one, but I never hunted with dogs. 
And when I was uh, just, I moved to Quebec, I moved around a little bit. And when I finally came back uh, to Manitoba and my wife and I finally got a house with a fence, we decided, yeah, let's get a dog. Now, I had no idea. I mean, now I've seen every single breed of pointing dog uh, in the in the world in their homelands in action. But at that point, I couldn't name you more than two breeds. Or or I would have mm. called one a lab and the other one, I don't know, a brown one. I, I didn't know <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, again, just as a kid, in, you know, in, in Manitoba, I hunted with my dad's, you know, cooey single shot 12 gauge that was held together with electric tape and barbed wire. And and we would go up and we would hunt sharp tail grouse with no dogs. We would just wander around. And if they flushed, we would shoot them and there we had supper. Yeah. Um, and then one day uh, I was out hunting with some of my buddies and next to us, it was a motel where we were staying overnight in northern Manitoba and a, and a, a van pulls up or a car pulls up. Uh, and it was with American license plates. It was brand new. It was huge. Uh, and out stepped these huge, <laughs> really, really well-dressed Americans. Um, it was the first time I tell everybody this, the first time I'd ever seen hunting glasses, hunting gloves, <laughs> hunting vests, hunting boots. Like I'm wearing rubber boots from the local hardware store and a pair of ripped jeans. Right. And these guys have, yep. these guys have like Orvis tags on everything. It's like, holy shit. These guys are <laughs> Look at these guys. These, these are real, true hunters. And then they opened the back door of the, I, I guess it was like a Suburban or something. They opened the back door and these two dogs jump, jump out. And they were, again, I, I, I say this every time I tell the story. To me, it was like watching rock stars get out of a limousine. It was like, oh my <laughs> God. Now, one of them, both of them had short coats. One of them had a brown coat with spots and the other one had sort of a gray coat. I had no idea. They told me what breeds they were. I quickly forgot. I just was dazzled by these dogs. I knew they were German. Uh, that was the only word I got, but everything else sort of, you know, went in one ear and out the other. The mm -hmm. next day uh, they went hunting and we went hunting and, and we were driving across or near one field and I could see them in the distance hunting. And I actually saw a dog on point. I don't remember which one it was, but it was the first time I'd ever seen a dog pointing. And I thought, Oh wow, that's what I've read about in magazines before. That's, that's really cool. The next day we get up, we're going to go hunting and these guys are just getting in. Uh, they'd been out all night and I figured, okay, there's a, you know, there's a pub down the road. They were pulling an all nighter. Nope. Yeah. They were out looking for their dogs. Uh, oh. Turns out one of their dogs didn't come back, but one of them did. So I look in the back of the car and there is the gray one. So from that point on, all I wanted was a gray one because they come back. <laughs> that, that that was the sum total of all my research into my very first breed i got a wine runner i was lucky uh finding a good hunting wine runner is not an easy thing i just sort of you know stumbled into one by chance and then had wine runners for for years uh, short hairs and long hairs that i imported from germany for many years and while they were excellent dogs and i loved them one of them was that horizon hunter i talked about the little gray dot on the horizon that you're just on yeah. the roller coaster the other ones were really good uh, hunting dogs but i do not hunt fur we're not allowed to it's illegal to hunt deer in manitoba with a dog uh i don't go after foxes i ignore coyotes i don't want my dogs attacking you know badgers and skunks and these wives oh my god that was their <laughs> you know they lived for that sort of stuff so i put up with that for years and years put up with it because they were just such superb dogs and great around the house and in the family and everything but they were german um, they were basically a little too much, too German for me because I, I really wasn't using them to their full extent. I wasn't doing any tracking with them. I didn't need a guard dog. I didn't, I didn't need half the features that they came with. Right. So I was always right. struggling a little bit against that. Then Henri, this magnificent dog, 
Um, well, first of all, our first wine runner we got, he died at age 10 of blastomycosis. And we watched him suffer for months and it was awful. And then a few years later, we get Henri and he's seven and he gets damn lymphoma. Mm. And he dies after a terrible illness. And so, you know, in the, in the span of, a, you know, half a dozen years or so, we had lost two magnificent dogs um, and were heartbroken. And so, of course, everybody in the Wyoming community were all over us going, listen, you should get a puppy. Here's some pictures. We'll, you know, got a new litter. And my wife and I, we couldn't even look at pictures of wine runners without bursting into tears. We just thought, you know what? Mm. No, we can't get another right now. Those are two big shoes to fill. We just, let's switch breeds. Let's just try something else. And so we started thinking about all the dogs that we had seen and all the places we had been. And we kept coming back to a place called Picardy. And Picardy is in northern France. Everybody's heard of a Brittany or a Brittany Spaniel. Well, Brittany yeah. is a province or a department in France. Well, just above Brittany is a place called Normandy. That's where the beaches of Normandy were stormed in the Second World War. And then just above that, just north of that, is a region called Picardy. And Picardy, <laughs> you know, when we went there, I was amazed. I'm, we're driving around. Now, the, first of all, it's where World War I happened. So there's graveyards with, you know, tombstones everywhere. That's the only difference. But the rest of it basically looks kind of like where I live. And the hunters there basically hunt like I hunt. Them and a buddy might go out with a dog or two, and they might shoot a hun, they might shoot a pheasant, they might shoot a couple of ducks, uh, mainly because that's what they want for supper. And then when they get home, all they want that dog to do is shut the hell up and lie by the fireplace and chill out. And <laughs> yep. so when we were thinking about all the different dogs, and that we, we kept thinking, we kept coming back to Picardy and thinking, why don't we get a dog that has been bred and raised and selected for not only a place that looks like kind of like where we live, but also by hunters who hunt the way we hunt and who want the same kind of dogs as us. They're not hardcore trainers. They're not, you know, like you go to Germany, my goodness, they're good trainers. And they start training that dog from day one. And by the time the dog's three years old, he's got like a medical degree and a couple of PhDs, <laughs> right? Yeah. In France, in France, they teach him to sit down, shut up and fetch. Okay, that's it. And then the rest of the time, they just keep their mouth shut and hunt. They just, they, and that is another aspect I should have mentioned. How much do you enjoy training? How much, yeah. how good of a trainer are you? Is training something that motivates you? Personally, I'm a really mediocre trainer on a good day. Um, and I don't particularly get into training. Hey, look, I'll train my dogs because I know I need to and I want them to do X, Y, and Z. But I don't wake up in the morning like a lot of my friends do. They go, oh, hey, I'm going to do this. Let's go train for that. Let's <laughs> yeah. join this training group and let's do it. I'm not. I just kind of go, yeah, I don't know. I just want to hunt. So yep. that's the story of why I got a Picardy Spaniel because it's a breed that comes from a region of the world that kind of looks like where I hunt. It's bred by hunters who hunt the way I hunt and want dogs to perform in the way that I want them to. So it was kind of a match made in heaven, really. Yeah. And, and it makes sense. I mean, it's like you said, it, and what you're describing I've kind of witnessed this over the uh, over the small number of years that I've been doing this. So many people will get stuck in a breed because that's the first breed they got, right? It, it, they're really reluctant to change because people like what they know. And even if the dog doesn't fit, they love the dog. They appreciate the dog for what it is, but they're reluctant to switch later on, even if there is a you know, quote unquote, better breed for them and their lifestyle because it's just what they're used to. 
And, and it's, it's very difficult for a lot of people to take the chance and try something else because, you know, we're creatures of routine and habit. And if you've spent 10 to 12 years training one breed of dog, you kind of feel like you already have that breed kind of figured out. So you know what you're getting into, but what you just said, it's like y'all switched and you found a breed that really fit your lifestyle, where you live geographically and the habitat you're hunting and the style of hunting just by switching breeds. Yeah, it's true. And and once you've been into a breed for a number of years, you've also developed all sorts of relationships with other people in the breed, um, whether it be with the breed club or with other breeders. So you've hunted with them, you've broken bread with them, you've shared stories and heartache with them, you've had their dogs and they've you know trained your, you, you've developed all these kinds of relationships. So it is a tough thing. I mean, to this day, I still have very strong connections and very strong, uh, you know, a lot of love for the Weimaraner community. I still, in fact, have one. I have a, an older, he's almost 14 now, a long-haired Weimaraner runner from from germany and i'll never say never I'll, i i've never said i'll never have another one but mm-hmm. yeah life is too short to in my view i, I again i don't deny uh, uh you know the enjoyment or the the value of sticking with one breed and really getting to know it really really well and and that community but on the other hand you're right in saying that sometimes we just get stuck in sort of routine or if the reason that we're doing something is because it's easy, it might not necessarily be the best reason. Um, because we could take, for instance, geography. You know, my dog came, he was actually born in England, but his parents were from France. So there was importing stuff. I mean, and I'd have to travel a lot to see these different breeds. So sometimes people just get a dog not only because it's the only breed they know, but because there's one down the road. Yes. Um, you know, and they're easy to get or or someone's given them away for free or or they got a good price on one. And hey, you know, fine. I mean, those are justifiable reasons, but they shouldn't be the only consideration. Right. Um, nowadays, travel is so cheap and easy. Well, it used to be before the plague. But once things get <laughs> back, get back to normal, uh, it's not that difficult to get a little bit outside of your comfort zone, maybe to the next state over or a couple states over or to the other coast or even to another country. Uh, I've helped people get dogs from in the States, get dogs from Quebec. I've helped people in uh, in Canada get dogs from all over from Europe. I Actually, I helped a guy in England place a dog on Kodiak Island, Alaska, uh, like, <laughs> like a couple of months ago. Um, so even during this pandemic, he was able to, to do that. Now, it cost a pretty penny, but yeah. again, so that's one of the things is that keep your mind open to these these, these ideas that you don't have to limit yourself to only what everybody else has. Now, as I'm saying that, I'm also thinking the opposite is true. Um, I, I know of some cases where the people got the wrong dog simply because they didn't, they, the, their only thing was they wanted something different. Right. And so, you know, common sense went out the window just because they wanted to be something different or rare and they wanted to make a quick buck on it. Or, um, you know, they wanted to sort of brag that they had some exotic uh, beast from some exotic land. Yeah. And again, you, you kind of got to check yourself on that as well. I mean, there are there's certain, you know, there's certain baggage that comes with those sorts of decisions. So, again, it, it takes a little bit of soul searching in terms of really understanding what you want and why, what your, what your actual real motivations are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so you, you kind of touched on a, a couple factors that a lot of people, especially beginners take into consideration when they're trying to select maybe their first dog, uh, the, the location and price. That's really, I mean, it, it, you can open up 
Facebook or social media anytime. And there's always somebody asking, I want, you know, X breed. Is there any in the area? And, and that's really their only primary concern, that and price. But there are so many other factors that goes into trying to find the right dog and the right breed for you. So besides what we just said, the, the location and the price, in your mind, what is really in your priority list for somebody, especially a beginner, looking at their first dog? What would you say is should prioritize it, like in order? Right? I mean, you have everything from you know, size, you, you have lifestyle, the hunting, we touched on a few of these things, but what would you advise a first time buyer to uh, consider when they're looking at their first dog? Yeah. I don't know if I could put them sort of in any order of priority, but I'll, I'll sort of enumerate some of the most important ones. Uh, you touched on one lifestyle, huge. Do you have children? Um, you know, or do you not have children? Do you expect children? How old are they? And where, you know, how many are at home and and this and that sort of, and because, you know, getting a dog, a friend of mine just had their second child and they're thinking about getting a dog. I said, so you realize that, and they've never had a dog before. I said, you realize you're basically thinking about adding a third child to the mix, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And they said, what? Yeah. Said, well, you know, it's another mouth to feed. It's, you know, it's some more stuff to clean up after and raising and train. You know, I mean, look, it is. And they thought, yeah, it's true. We never, we never thought of that. We just thought it would be good for the kids. Yeah, it'd be great for the kids. They're nothing better than puppy and kids, but is it with your lifestyle? So if you decide that, you know, in your lifestyle with your children at that age or the number of children you have or whatever your family situation is, it's good for you. Then my advice is to forget about the dog breed for a second and think about breeders. In other words, if I had three breeds in mind or I've narrowed it down to three or four different breeds that kind of I like the looks of them and we'll talk about looks in a second. But I kind of like these dogs. What I've read about them, okay, I've narrowed it down. Stop thinking about the breeds and start contacting breeders. And then the number one choice, number one sort of priority breeder you should have is a breeder who's got kids of about your age. Uh, or has gone through that. Once you buy a dog, one of the most important things that people overlook is the relationship that you you should, and I encourage everybody, is to develop with the breeder. All right, the breeder will be your greatest resource. It's like buying any other product from any other place. What is the after sales service like? What happens when your dog does this or doesn't do that? What happens when it has this illness or it's showing these symptoms? One of the first people you should be able to go back to is that breeder. Now, Mm -hmm. if your lifestyle involves, you know, working long hours away from home, but you've got the kids and their latchkey or whatever that situation happens to be, if you can find a breeder who either has that similar situation, has lived through that, or can understand that, that's a huge thing. So what is your lifestyle? Um, what are the possible changes in your lifestyle? Are you someone who's going to be moving? Are you in the military? You're going to be moving every year or two or three. Uh, are you in a job that's an unstable and that you have no idea where you're going to be a year from now? Lisa and I, my wife and I, we waited, oh God, 10, 12 years before we got a dog. We wanted one day one. The day we met, one of the things we had in common was our love of dogs. Yeah. But we waited and waited because we moved around a lot and we weren't, you know, in stable jobs or in a stable place. And we waited. So yeah, lifestyle is is huge. And part of your lifestyle is your hunting. All right. 
Is hunting a part of your lifestyle and just how important is it? Are you a weekend guy? I know people who hunt two weekends a year. They hunt geese twice a year. And then there are people like me and my wife who, you know, from opening day till the closing day, we're basically out there, rain or shine. So again, that's going to play into your decision. And it's also going to play into your decision of which breeder to go to. Um, Again, if you're super hardcore, you want a hardcore breeder. If you're not super hardcore, you don't need a hardcore breeder because they yeah. may, they may be pushing you or maybe, you know, and, and and frankly, they may be unwilling to place a dog with you because you just don't, you know, suit the personality or the type of person they want to place dogs with. Right. And I, I always quote uh, a previous guest on this podcast, a trainer in North Carolina, Grayson Geyer, you know, he, he mentioned when he was on this podcast a while back that nowadays there's this much differences within the breeds as there are amongst the breeds. And that kind of goes into what you're talking about, selecting the right breeder and finding the breeder that has the same lifestyle that hunts the game that you hunt the way you want to hunt it. And as often as, and how hard you want to hunt it. So it is extremely important to, once you kind of select the breed, understand that that's really not the end of the process. You have to start the process of vetting out all the breeders and finding the right fit with, within that breed for yourself. Oh yeah, for sure. And not only does that help raise the chances that you're going to get a dog that you will, that, that you'll be happy with and that will enrich in your life. But you also, will be making new friends. Listen, the, the, the people, every dog I've ever got from, uh, you know, I'm friends with those breeders and some of them I've hunted with and some of them, they're, they're almost like family now. You know, the uh, everybody I've gotten dogs from, I now consider close personal friends of mine because of that connection between us and that particular dog. And yeah. so, and then, and, and from there, their friends became my friends and that sort of group, like breeders don't exist in a vacuum. Breeders exist within a network or within a community of other breeders within that, th- within that breed. You're right. There are individual dogs and individual lines within different breeds um, can be vastly different. And the people who are, you know, look at the GSP, for example, one of the most ubiquitous dogs across North America. Well, there's a half <laughs> dozen or more different types of them. There are, you know, yep. little tiny field trial rockets in there and NAVDA GSPs. And then there are Deutsch Kurzars, which are the German sort of variant. And each one of those variants within that breed or strains within the, the that breed has its own group of supporters. So by getting a dog from one of those people, if that opens the door to that particular group of people and you see eye to eye with those people, if that's your jam, then it just opens up so many more opportunities. You know, we hunt, uh, you know, we've hunted, we don't have pheasants here in Manitoba. It's the only thing we don't have. So we travel to the States to hunt pheasants. And, you know, it's thanks to the connections we've made through breeders and, and the breeders of dogs that we have, that we've been able to have some unbelievably cool hunts. And, They've come here. I've hosted people here in Manitoba uh, from all over Europe and from the U.S. coming here. Why? Because we shared common breeds of dogs or friends or I got a dog from them or I helped them get a dog from others. And so that's part of it. Like getting a dog is is basically your door into a community uh, or it should be if you play your cards right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, speaking to that, it, there's so many potential downfalls that especially a first time dog owner can fall into, you know, that there's so many hurdles that you have to try and avoid so that you don't get steered down to the, the wrong path and try and, you know, you end up with a, a 
potentially poor fit with you and your family. So what are some of those main factors that the first time buyer should try and avoid so that they can set themselves up for success and set their potential new puppy up for success? Number one, don't go too fast. Whatever timeline that you've given yourself, I want a dog by the end of next month, double it, triple it. If you want a dog, you know, that's going to be hunting for you next September, if your season opens around the same time as ours does. Next fall, you know, we're in January right now. Well, you know, you you, you need to be thinking about getting a, a puppy or start a dog like tomorrow, but do not rush that. It would probably yeah. be best to just, you know, put it off for next fall uh, or get a, you know, thinking about maybe getting a puppy in the summer. But in the meantime, take your time. You want to do dog tests? You love the idea of NAVDA? Go to NAVDA tests. Hang out with those people. You like field trials? Go to some field trials. Hang out with those people. You you, you like the look of a particular dog, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with liking the way a certain breed looks and simply choosing it because you like the color or the size of their hair type? Fine. That's That plays into it. Uh, you know, part of the pleasure, part of the smile on the on our face comes from the pleasure of actually looking at that beast and, and appreciating its beauty for whatever you see it as um so find people with those dogs and hang out with them and hang out with and try and hang out with that community and see if it's a good fit for you you'll know it when it is you really will my podcast partner uh jennifer wapensky uh you know she has a a german long-haired pointer deutsch longhaar and uh she had narrowed it down to two or three um different breeds and then finally contacted a breeder and she got the deutsch longhaar not because, again, she had narrowed it down to several breeds, but it was mainly because of the breeder that she, all of a sudden, you know, that 10 minute sort of phone call, I'll just ask a couple of questions turned into now a friendship, a relationship. Yeah, it, it, just I, tell people, I tell people all the time, like they ask, when do I know that it's right? I'm like, you will know. I just coached a couple buddies who are getting their first dogs. And, you know, one guy was like, how many breeders do I need to keep? keep reaching out to and i'm like honestly if you're asking that question you need to keep reaching out i'm like you will know when it feels right it, you just go until you find that relationship and that connection oh definitely and and yeah and you want to invest in it so number one you want to be honest with yourself by doing a little soul searching but you need to be brutally honest with the breeder um you know i've had breeder friends uh, tell me that they have certain questions um that they'll ask potential purchasers about hunting dogs. And one of them uh, is is easy to fudge, right? They'll ask him, so do you hunt? Oh, yeah, 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 we hunt all the time. Well, one of the trick questions a friend of mine told me, she goes, I always ask him what gauge of shotgun they have. Because if that guy's BSing you, if that person is just not really a hunter and saying that they hunt just because they want that dog, (laughs) they'll stumble. Uh, Well, I've got one of those Remington bb gun shooter gun. you know what i mean like any hardcore hunter will not only tell you the gauge of his gun but he'll tell you you know the year it was made and the style and the you know the, like the, that's what yep. us hunters do you you start those conversations and so it's the same thing on the other way around you need to be honest when they ask you how often you hunt tell them if they ask you what you hunt and what you plan to do with the dog tell them the other really really important aspect is that a really good breeder will ask more questions of you than you ask of them. Absolutely. If all of a sudden, they're just peppering you with a bunch of different questions. That's a good thing. The, old, the, the, the breeder you want to avoid is the, is the one that only asks, you know, will, be, will that be cash or check? Just yeah. like run. Do not walk away. Run from that. That is just a, a sign of someone who doesn't give a rat's ass 
about you or the dogs. They just want to pass on as many puppies as they possibly can. Now, do they have good dogs? Maybe. But do you want to be involved with that person? Do you, will you get the after-sales service? Will you get the support, moral support, medical, veterinary support, training support? And heck, if you play your cards right, will you end up hunting with that person next fall in a Absolutely. brand new state, in a brand new place, on brand new game? See, that's the thing. Getting a puppy should be, or getting a dog really should be your connection you know i say with the natural world with with the game and terrain we hunt but with also a community of like-minded people for sure for sure and don't let it be a deterrence you know i've i've talked to plenty of people that say oh i i I felt that connection with this breeder but they had a waiting list and i couldn't get one of his puppies for another year year and a half And I try and tell them, like, don't let that deter you, because if it felt right and you know that that was the right fit for you, what's another year, year and a half of waiting time to get the right dog and the dog that you really want? You know, a year, year and a half goes by quick. Don't let a a long waiting period deter you from selecting the right one for you. Not only that, your commitment, your sort of saying, look, okay, I will wait. I do trust you. Uh, put me on the list for next year. That That's that's going to gain you a lot of points with that breeder as well. Like this is a serious person. Breeders, and I'm not a breeder. I, I never want to be a breeder, but I admire the hell out of breeders because they have to put up with a lot. And breeders will tell you if, they, you know, get a couple of glasses of wine into them or a couple of beers in their belly and they'll start <laughs> telling you the war stories because yep. it's, you know, it's an art and a science to breed dogs, and I admire these people and the heartaches that they go through and the and the and the dedication they give to their breed. But you know what? If they're honest with you, they'll tell you that it's it's not so much the dogs that are a problem; it's the people. Um, right. That that they, they every single one of them will have at least one horror story of you know sort of the the puppy purchaser Zilla. Um, yeah, just came back to haunt them or, you know, driving halfway across the country to grab a dog out of somebody's hands who they thought was a good person, but ended up being a total. So that's the thing too, is that you're not just evaluating breeders. Breeders are evaluating you and they should be. If you got a breeder that's got a very fine sieve net in terms of, you know, a really, you know, hard selection process of purchases, you're onto a serious person. And you're onto a person that will likely commit as long as you do to that dog and that breed. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about all this and just picture being back into, you've never bought a dog, right? You're considering your first dog and you're listening to this episode. You might be asking where in the heck do I start finding this information where do i start weeding out some of this so that i can make sure that i get the right breed you know walk the beginner through that process of where they should really start because as you just mentioned there's breeds from all over this world and figuring it out can be a task you know there's a lot of time behind the computer screen trying to figure this out where would you push somebody to start their search well, first of all, I would push them to narrow it down in terms of the type of dog that they want, in terms of the the, uh, the the main sort of performance characteristic. Do you want a sedan, a minivan, or a 4x4 truck, right? So do you want a flushing dog, a dog that quests in front of you, always within gun range, that once it finds game, it flushes it, forces it into flight for you to shoot, and then fetches it? Or do you want a pointing dog? A pointing dog will quest further than a flushing dog, anywhere from gun range out to... <laughs> (laughs) 
a mile. Uh, and that <laughs> will be part of your decision in terms of how far you want that dog to, to, to search for you. Yeah. And once it finds game, it points, it stops, you get close, birds flushed, you shoot and it retrieves, or maybe it doesn't. Again, that's another choice. Do you, do you want it to retrieve? Uh, do you hunt a lot of ducks? Do you want a dog that will sit quietly by your side and wait for the, you know, the ducks to come to the decoys or the geese to fly over and you take a shot and them to fetch them for you? So we've got basically we could now, now again, there are other types. We can get into terriers. We can get into long dogs and lurchers and all sort of these other, uh, other types of dogs. But the, the main, three types of dogs you're going to be looking at if you've got a gun in your hand and you're you're, you're hunting upland game or waterfowl in North America uh, will be flushing dogs, pointing dogs, and uh, retrievers. And within mm-hmm. each of those different sections, there is, uh, uh, there is a variety. There are some choices, but it's the pointing dog uh, type that gives you the biggest sort of uh, or the longest list of optional equipment and the longest list of different breeds. With the retriever breeds, really, it's only going to come down to a couple of different breeds. Yes, there are Irish water spaniels out there, and yes, there are Americans and Boykins uh, and other breeds out there, and 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 you could research those. But again, there, there's just sort of like head and shoulders, or or by uh, you know uh, degrees of magnitude above them are the labs, and then a little bit under that are the golds. Just in terms of numbers, just in terms of what you're going to be seeing, right? Uh, yeah. It's like saying I want to buy a pickup truck. Well, it's a Ford or a Chevy, or is it you know some Isuzu from some other you know exotic <laughs> land? They all have their purpose, and they're all great. And and hey, if you want to find, if you want to hunt over an Irish water spaniel, call me because I'll hunt with you because I love those dogs. <laughs> um, but same thing with the um, flushing breeds. There are fewer breeds, and there are only one or two cockers and springers that are like head and shoulders above everything else. Once you get into the pointing breeds, things get a little bit. Uh, more difficult to parse because there are just so many more breeds within each breed. There's a different types and the differences between, you know, this breed and that breed could be enormous. Um, You know, the difference between the performance of a Chesapeake and a lab are there differences for sure. And Chesapeake people and lab people will tell you all about the differences, but basically they're going to sit beside you and go and fetch something once you shoot it. Uh, yeah. You might also use them to flush pheasants or do some flushing in the uplands, which is great and fine. Um, same thing with springers and cockers. They're, they're, they're kind of going to be doing the same thing. They're not going to range out further than gun range. They're going to zip around. They're going to flush stuff. You're going to shoot it and they're going to fetch it up. Now, when you get the pointing dogs, my goodness, um, you know, is it running an all age race? Is it, you know, galloping a million miles an hour out to the horizon? Is it really close and methodical? Do you want it to only point and never fetch? Do you want it to point and fetch? Do you want it to point and fetch in water and on land? Do you want it to point, fetch, track? Do you want it to point, fetch, track, bay a boar and protect the house? I mean, it, it can go on and on, right? Right. So, so that's step one. Step one, do you want a flushing dog? Do you want a, a retrieving dog? Uh, or do you want a, a pointing dog? Um, and then from there, you, you know, you look at things like just, you know, um, things that some people sort of ignore, size. Do you want a small dog or a big dog? Yeah. Um, you know, what's the difference between a cocker and a, and a springer? Well, there are performance differences nowadays, but a hundred years ago, you had both in the same litter. Anything that was under a certain size was called a cocker. Anything over a certain size was called a springer. They were the same. <laughs> the main difference was size. Um, you know, same thing with the retrievers. There, there are very few specialist retriever breeds that are, you know, cocker sized. And there are, none of them are the size of a Great Dane. 
But within the pointing breeds, you know, you, you, you put a Brittany beside a Spinoni and, it, you know, there's a 60 pound difference. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, I, I agree. And, you know, you, you touched on a lot right there. I, I want to get your thoughts and on what the versatile dogs, right? Because, you know, when we say versatile nowadays, people automatically think NABDA, right? The, the pointing dogs within the NABDA, because that's the testing system here in America or the German system. But, you know, just, just because the dog doesn't point, it can still be versatile. Just like you mentioned the lab, you know, they can, they're also flushing dogs. They're not just retriever specialists. You know, so some people uh, blood trail with their labs. So, you know, there's so much versatility. And so you, it really, in my opinion, goes back to what are you going to be doing the most of? What do you want to prioritize and matching that up with the specialization of these breeds? Because, when you st- start talking about versatility, I want to do a little bit of everything. Well, there's there's all kinds of dogs out there that can do a little bit of everything. It's like, how do you define versatility? Yeah, that's a huge topic. And I've written a number of blog posts and articles about that. But, you know, you no, you're right. I mean, you know, uh, I just actually I wrote uh, I'm writing another book. Um, and part of the book, I was just writing a section today about a guy his name was Dodge. Actually, his last name was Dodge. And he was a lieutenant colonel, I believe, in the Army in the 1880s uh, at, near Dodge City, Kansas. And he and three uh, Englishmen went out on a hunting spree over a three-week period. And they killed, I mean, bison and antelope and prairie chickens and all sorts of things. And the dog that they took with them was an English pointer. It was a pointer. Okay. Uh, and that pointer, they trained to blood track. And they trained to what's called... Uh, uh, barking or baying dead baying in other words uh, they would send it on a trail out of sight and then the dog once it found the downed antelope or deer would sit beside it and bark and lead them to it um, okay and then or if the antelope was shot in the ass and was running away it would run it down and drag it down and this was a pointer that they used you know and one of the most memorable hunts i ever had was i hunted with a guy who had a Brittany and his buddy had a chesapeake bay retriever and we were hunting in south dakota south dakota for prairie chickens so I've hunted prairie chickens over a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, all sorts of dogs can do all sorts of things. And so um, if you if you are thinking that I want a dog that's sort of a jack of all trades that can do a bunch of different things, yeah, you can find dogs in almost any breed that you can. My friend Judy has a versatile champion, Navda, versatile champion pointer. Uh, and I I've interviewed people who have versatile champion uh, Irish setters uh, and English mm-hmm. setters, so it's completely possible. But then again, you're you're now you're narrowing it down, narrowing it down. So put it this way: if I really wanted to hunt prairie chickens with a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, I would do my darndest to find a guy that hunts prairie chickens with Chesapeake Bay Retriever <laughs> and ask him about it. Right. So so mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like you, you know now you're starting to get you're sort of narrowing down the niche within a niche within a niche. If you want a truly versatile breed and you want to have the highest odds of getting one that's going to do it without any specialized training or that, that is sort of designed for that, go for one of the breeds that are renowned for their versatile abilities. You know, the traditional sort of German dogs or the Navda type dogs. Um, and that's your greatest chances or the, that that's the highest odds of getting one that'll do all sorts of those things. Um, right. But that does not preclude you or because it hasn't precluded others. I mean, in fact, in NABDA early days, there was a certain amount of, 
at least discussion about letting labs uh, into NAVDA, especially pointing mm -hmm. labs, because there are strains of Labrador retrievers that have been selected over years uh, to point, and there are Labrador retrievers that point. Uh, my friend who breeds Irish water spaniels, he tells me all of his Irish water spaniels point. So there was talk in the early days of NAVDA actually doing other than just the traditional pointing breeds, but that never went anywhere. But you are right. I, I've hunted over pointing labs, and 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 labs can be superb, uh, sort of all round dogs, as can uh, Irish water spaniels as well. Absolutely. So, I mean, really, when when you break this all down, it, it really comes down to your wish list and, and your goals. I mean, that we can't go down every single breed of dog out there. I mean, if if people want to hear that that's what they need to go check out your podcast for, right? Because that's what you and Jennifer are doing and, and excelling at is breaking down all these, these breeds and the historical significance of it. Uh, so I won't even begin to ask about specific breeds other than one. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here because sure. I was having this discussion with a buddy of mine and he, he did not believe me and it may have been, I did, I wasn't explaining it correctly, but uh, I want you to explain the Nova Scotia duck tolling dog and yeah. its purpose and how it acts. And if you've seen it actually happen and work well in person. All right. Yeah. Let me explain that before I do. And I'll mention this. We should probably mention this one more time at the end as well, but right now I'll mention it just in terms of choosing uh, for a pointing dog at project upland. There is an excellent article. Um, uh, well, <laughs> I shouldn't say excellent because I wrote it. It's it's it's, it's an article. Uh, the reason I say excellent is because of the way they laid it out. They they really did a really good job in terms of laying out the graphics that are um, actually from my my first book, Pointing Dogs Volume One, um, and it's called a comprehensive guide to choosing a bird dog slash the pointing breeds. And it goes mm -hmm. over things like uh, basically what I did in my book is I broke them down into okay, what's the size? I want a small one, medium, or big one. Coat colors. Right. Which which coat colors do they come in? Coat length. Long, short, wire-haired. Um, what range do they run at? What speed do they run at? That, those sorts of things. So it's it's a it's a good handy resource. It's on the Project Upland um, website on the on the interwebs. Now to answer your question, Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, fantastic, <laughs> cool yeah. breed. I photographed them this summer, and now I have never seen them actually toll, but it is on my bucket list of things to do. They are not the only breed that can toll. Any breed can toll, but they just got the name Toller in there because of uh, their history and and how they were sort of selected in Nova Scotia and and sort of on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. A number of different types of dog Chesapeake Bay Retrievers were used for tolling. Now, what does tolling mean? Well, so what you got to do is put yourself in a position, uh, you know, at at a point in time where you don't have that whatever sweet auto or side by side or over and under that you're swinging right now, and you're down and teal like nobody's business, or you know, you're making these great shots on snow geese. You got to put yourself at a time when those guns didn't exist. All right, the, you know, wing shooting up until the late 1800s, up until yeah, about the 1880s, 1890s was seen as a parlor trick. In fact, anybody who could shoot an individual bird on the wing was seen as some sort of, you know, magician. It was it was crazy. People <laughs> because the guns at that time 
were not particularly effective. They were heavy. They were, they were, they were cumbersome and especially the guns that they used for waterfowl. So the most common way of taking waterfowl before people started wing shooting and shooting from blinds and decoys and all that sort of stuff was to use what's called a punt gun or just a basically a big gun. Some of them were four, six or eight gauge guns, massive cannons. They'd put it on a boat and they would row their boat out, you know, sort of lying down, lying down on a boat with this gun pointing out the end of it. They would sort of, you know, just, just, just slowly paddle across and then just boom, shoot birds on the water. So, yep. but what happens if you've got this type of a unruly gun, you know, it's maybe sort of a musket or sort of a muzzle loading black powder type of a gun uh, or an early, you know, sort of type of, of shotgun and you didn't have a boat or you were on the coast where getting in a boat wasn't the best idea because it's waves and whatever, but you could see every damn day you're out there. And you can see that there's these rafts of a thousand ducks sitting out there 200 <laughs> yards. They're 200 yards away. They're giving you the middle finger. If you could only somehow convince them to come closer. So, I mean, lots of techniques were developed. You know, they put rice, they put food out there and then hopefully get them in. They get them close enough. Boom. Well, one of the things that they noticed now, I did a deep dive. I, there's actually an article online. If you if you just put my name in and put duck tolling, Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, you'll find another article on the Project Upland um, uh, platform. I wrote about them. But at some point in time, somebody realized or somebody witnessed that foxes and coyotes and other canines would play, run back and forth along the shoreline. Sometimes they would do this in pairs. So just imagine this. you got a pair of foxes. One is hiding, sort of, you know, tucked into a little bush right on the edge of the water. And the other one just keeps running back and forth on the, on the, on the edge of, of the water, on the beach. Mm-hmm. Well, ducks are a curious creature. And for some reason, and there's lots of people speculating why they do this. They think that maybe, the, you know, it's, the fox has found something to eat, so they want to come and eat it. Nobody really knows why, but ducks and geese. When they see a canine like a fox uh, or a coyote sort of running around on the shoreline are curious enough to get closer and closer and closer and closer. And then the fox that was hidden would jump out and grab one. So at some point in time, men saw this and thought, hey, hang on. What if I train a dog to act like that fox? What if (laughs) I'm the dude hiding in the bush and I just train my dog and hey, you know what? My neighbor's got a dog and it's got a red coat. It kind of looks like a fox anyway. Let's train that dog. In fact, I'll just throw bones. I'll throw rocks. I'll throw a, you know, a little toy out there back and forth from this bush. So this dog just runs around. Well, sure enough, the ducks keep getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And finally, when they're in range, boom, you shoot them. <laughs> and then your dog goes out and fetches them. Uh, so that's called tolling, that activity of, of, of drawing, of luring ducks close to you by the animated play and the animated actions of a dog along a shoreline is called tolling. And it was common along the eastern seaboard. Again, there are, there are uh, reports of it being done in Chesapeake Bay itself with Chesapeake Bay retrievers. But it was very common in Nova Scotia. And there was this dog that was developed and selected over generations to kind of look like a fox. So they've got a red coat. Uh, they got a pink nose. They're a cute looking guy and very animated, good swimming dogs. And that's what they do. They apparently do it. And when I was writing the article, I decided to, you know, reach out to people on Facebook and social media. And there are still guys that do it. There are a couple in the States and there are some in Canada that still actually toll with their dogs. And it's just, I just have to see it. I absolutely have to see it done. 
Yeah. I mean, it, that that's one of those things for years. I, I've been so intrigued by that, but so few people have actually seen it. And like I said, you know, I was talking to a buddy who's duck hunted his entire life and I was explaining that to him and it's like he didn't believe me i'm like i'm telling you that's the nova scotia duck tolling dog so you know it really when i told him that i was having you on he was like well ask him about that because i don't believe you i said like, all right i will i'll throw it out to him <laughs> yeah you know when i was doing the research on it actually I, I i uncovered some some new sort of archives and new research and added to the sort of uh, the 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 history of this breed by finding um, old French documents. Apparently it was developed in France before it was ever done here. Uh, and it was probably, the technique was probably brought over by Frenchmen uh, who were up in that area uh, hunting around that time. Um, and they actually had a, a strain of dogs um, that they called a Lulu. Uh, it was called a Lulu dog. And uh, <laughs> what they said is they would either, that they came in all colors. They said the best ones were the red orange ones, but if need be, you would, they would just actually brush them with ochre, just sort of a pigment. They would, they would, they would dye their coats or they would put on a wool sort of a vest that was of that color because they, they felt it was a better way to do it. But there's illustrations of them, you know, old engravings and lithographs of, of them practicing that technique. And yeah, I mean, it, it also is related to another technique whereby in Holland and in England, they use similar types of dogs. In fact, there's a Koikerhunde, which is a type of a dog from Holland that looks like a little fox. And what it is trained to do and what it does is it draws ducks closer to shore and then draws them up what's called, a, in English, we call it a pipe. Uh, in uh, Dutch, they call it a koi. In fact, to say the koi in Dutch, you say decoy. Decoy. So that's where the word decoy comes from. And so it was a dog that was trained to run back and forth along the shore and then back and forth up along this, this narrowing funnel of a cage until all the dogs or all the ducks got trapped in one end. And those decoys, so that we call a decoy a thing that looks like a duck and floats in the water, but the Dutch call a decoy is that whole structure of that cage. And it's a fairly large thing. Well, there are still about 30 or so permanent decoys that exist in Holland to this day. They still use them to do research on ducks or to ban them and to do other things. They, they still use decoys and decoy dogs to draw ducks up into these, these, these sort of funnels and, and to gather them all th oh, together and, and capture them. That, so, that that stuff is just amazing and fascinating, and, and it really is. It it, it kind of ha has me wondering, you know, number one, how popular was the dog back in the day, and did maybe some of that that information and popularity start to wean the the more technology we got, and the more people made decoys, and the more. Uh, accessible boats and stuff like that were and that's why you don't really see it anymore and even people that have been in duck hunting their entire lives have never even heard of that before oh yeah no it was all because of uh, two things um so uh, guns for instance you know modern uh, firearms um, they got to a point where you didn't need to lure the ducks in close to you, you would, you know, and, and boats and whatever you would, you would use other techniques. A lot of these techniques were due to the fact that, that men just couldn't, they just didn't have the technology. That's why the first pointing dogs were developed. They weren't developed for the gun. Pointing dogs were developed for nets and for falcons and for other techniques. They were used so that they would point the birds out and you would throw a net over top of the dog and the birds. Um, so, so a lot of the dogs that we have and the techniques that were used back in the day were because we didn't have the tools and technology that we have nowadays. 
once those tools and technology came, you know, became popular, well, you no longer needed those particular skills and they went the, the way of the dodo. There's an old manuscript from about the 1600s in Spain and the guy he's writing in there, he's complaining about these new damn guns because now he says, and they were, these, these were, um, arquebuses. I don't know what you would say in English, but like a, like a big blunderbuss. You know what I mean? Like these big guns that you have to put on a, on a, on a tripod to shoot, yeah. you know, the old mm-hmm. type of military type weapon. Well, when they first came out, they started replacing crossbows, not only on the battlefield, but they started replacing crossbows in the hunting field. The very first pointing dogs in Spain pointed birds on the ground so that the hunter could shoot them with a crossbow as they were sitting on the ground. And so this article or this 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 manuscript from the 1600s, the guy's bitching about it. He's going, oh, man, ever since these damn guns were invented, all the skill that we practiced and developed as crossbowmen is going away. Nobody does it anymore. We're losing that skill. And yeah. our dogs are losing that skill. So it's true. But like I say, there are still people who do uh, tolling with their dogs. Uh, and I, I just, I have to see it. It's just gone. Yeah. You know, last year, the last duck hunt I had at the Delta Marsh last year was just after freeze up when the shoreline was frozen. And I swear to God, we were standing there four or five of us and three, 400 yards away from us was the biggest raft of canvas backs I've ever seen in my life. There were probably five, 600 birds sitting out there. Wow. And it was a nice day and nothing we did. No calling, no decoy spread, no nothing would convince them to come anywhere near us. And I kept thinking to myself, I should get my dog. I should just go get my dog. <laughs> I should just throw the tennis ball for him and play fetch for a bit and see what the hell happens. Yeah. Uh, it might have worked. Who knows? Oh, man, it, it it really is fascinating. And, and Craig, I mean, we, we really could open a can of worms on this and talk all night about this stuff. But I mean, listeners, if you enjoy stuff like this, I mean, it's, it's just barely scratching the, the surface. And that's really what Craig's podcast uh, is really all about. Him and Jennifer do a great job of breaking down the history and the uses and, and just how these dogs that we love developed and where they developed from. Craig, you know, tell everybody the name of the podcast, where they can find it, and anything else you have going on that, that you want to put out there. Well, yeah, it's called the Hunt, Hunting Dog Confidential Podcast. Um, we also now have a magazine coming out where we're doing the second issue, uh, which will be coming out in the spring called Hunting Dog Confidential Magazine. Uh, you can find information at the Northwoods Collective or on Project Upland uh, websites. Um, I have a book which is called uh, Pointing Dogs Volume 1, The Continentals. It uh, it covers basically every breed of pointing dog that was developed uh, in uh, continental Europe. And I'm now working on Volume 2, which covers the British and Irish breeds, basically pointers and setters. I couldn't fit them all into one volume because Volume 1 is already 400 pages. Volume mm-hmm. 2 will be 400, so it would be an 800-page book. So I broke <laughs> it down into two volumes. Uh, I hope to have Volume 2 out this summer. But Volume 1 is out. Um, you can find uh, information on it and links uh, to purchase at dogwilling.ca. It's not .com because I'm in Canada. So it's dogwilling, all one word, .ca. That's where you get a hold of me, see my photos, videos, all kinds of stuff. Nice. I love it. And I mean, it, it really is, like I said, it is one of my favorite podcasts to dive deep. It, it, it goes great if, you know, just a day in the yard cutting grass or something you just turn it on and get lost in the great history of the dogs and and why we really love to do this but again craig i I really appreciate you making the time and coming on and share some of your knowledge and uh you know maybe we can uh, do it again sometime thank you very much nick it was a great pleasure 
Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just after replace it again and year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.